Oh my god, cramp. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> ah, no! I think that has just won the after the credits sound clip. <laughs> oh, my, my leg. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. My name is Andy, the self-proclaimed moon expert, and I'm doing this show with my co-host Rick, who is the every man. We'll ask every man questions about the moons. Uh, we are recording this on the 30th of July 2020, and the stuff that we hope to cover today is... The US is planning to build a nuclear power plant on the moon and Mars, hopefully by 2027. There are new-ish photos of Jupiter's moon of Ganymede. There was a new paper published recently about Pan, Atlas and Daphnis, those three moons of Saturn, how they got the shapes. In fact, the actual title of the paper is Accretion of Ornamental Equatorial Ridge. Another story we'll cover is there have been six new exomoons potentially discovered. And we're going to cover some very local moon news, as usual. This time I actually had a hand in it. And of course we'll do full moon of the month. And the next moon is, which in this case is going to be Europa. So, without further ado, how are you, Rick? I'm good, Andy. How are you? Uh, warm. Really, really yeah. warm. And I'm having to keep the windows closed because the seagulls are back and their babies are hungry and they won't stop screaming. Feed them. Give them bread. No, I can't. You can't feed them because that encourages them. And also the parents are trying to wean the baby seagulls off them being dependent on them, which means they're just screaming all the time basically screaming i'm hungry so yes it's uh quite frustrating do you think that lockdown is starting to ease up a bit <laughs> oh, i thought you meant do you think lockdown is getting to us because <laughs> um, i've been to your house i've never seen a seagull there uh <laughs> you haven't been in the summer <laughs> oh, i'm joking um <laughs> no seriously i've never seen a seagull they're all in your mind don't you dare gaslight me yeah no, uh, I can well imagine the seagulls are really annoying. We've got chickens that are just shouting at stuff, such as a tree. And uh, <laughs> the other day when it rained, uh, they shouted. Have I told you this one? No. Uh, our chickens have learnt that if they shout, we'll come out and generally sort out the thing that's going wrong. So if their bowl's flipped over, okay, uh, then they just shout and we'll come and sort it out. But it kind of means that anything that annoys them, they'll just shout at. And, and they expect us to sort it out, such as a heavy downpour the other day. They just started shouting at it. And I was like, well, I can't, <laughs> I can't control the weather. I'm sorry. I, I know full well the uh, mentality of uh, shouty birds. Yes. Like, even when I was recording the latest video and the latest podcast, I could hear them in the clips and the quieter bits. I was like, God damn, they're just, they're just infecting everything. Actually, we should talk about that video. That did seem like your mental breakdown's going well. Uh, yes, uh, I forget why I made it, but here, but it just snowballed. I started by thinking, I'll just do... Uh, the video is about Kale, or Kale, the small moon of Jupiter, and because there's virtually nothing to talk about other than it's this far away from the moon, it was discovered on this day, that's it. It's not a lot to talk about. The only thing about it is its name. So I thought, well, Kale... There's so many jokes you can make about the vegetable, which I don't want to do. So I know I've got a mate, my cousin, in fact, who makes this kind of music, ironically, but now he starts to get sincere about it, as is his weird way. Uh, so I thought, well, Kale, Kale Satan, I guess he could do the music for it. And then I just thought, oh, I'll put a medieval spin on it. That'll be easy. I could just get some royalty-free stock images of volcanoes for Monarchia and all this other stuff but no it took so long to make and then at the end product I thought oh god this, this makes no sense I should justify it and then by justifying it I then had to add in more minutes and then it just snowballed out of control. Um, yeah if you've not seen the video it's like on a, all on a tapestry so yeah how did you do that have you got like tapestry creator or something? I found a nice royalty free image of a cloth like quite a big wide one uh, and it had to be like plain nothing on it and then what I managed to do was kind of cut it in half or about like two-thirds of the way and then mirrored it 
and then just kept mirroring it until it was like the length of the thing that I needed. And then I just kind of cycled it for a bit until I got the exact length that I needed. Right, but there all the pictures and the text and stuff. Yeah, I overlaid that onto the tapestry. Uh, but what I also found was I didn't time certain bits properly, so it was like, oh, I'd love to get a, a nicer image of this impact. And then I realised, oh, I said the sentence too quickly, and I'm asked going back to re-record it. So what was meant to be like a very explosive image just turned out into, oh, there's, there it goes, because <laughs> I just said the sentence too quickly. But I think it, it, the final product is certainly a testament to sunk cost fallacy. Yes. <laughs> You could have given, like, five quid to someone on people per hour who just whiteboard it up for you. No, that's not the point. I could do that <laughs> I... with any other moon. <laughs> but, yes, I was very impressed, I must say. Oh, thank you very much. And I think other people have responded positively to it as well because it has peaked me over into the all-important thousand subscribers. So if you're listening to this and have subscribed, thank you very much. And if you haven't subscribed, please feel free to jump on the bandwagon. There's plenty of room so I can hopefully get more stats and we reach a wider audience. Yeah, because the way the algorithms work, they're all exponential. So the more subscribers you get, the more subscribers you get. Broadly like coronavirus, really. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly if like you can that. You stop, stop subscribing to coronavirus. That would be good as well. Stop sharing it, liking it. <laughs> Thumbs down, unsubscribe. Shall we, uh, shall we talk about some moon-related stuff? Uh, yes. So, our first story is the US seeks designs to install nuclear power plants on the moon and Mars by 2027. Which, fairly alarming, but it does make sense, considering that a lot of spacecrafts already use nuclear power to get and just keep them propelling and giving them power. Cassini had a small uh, nuclear energy generator on board. So it's not uncommon to have like nuclear power in space travel. It's just that this would be fairly big. Uh, the, the specifications they af they're after are it must provide an uninterrupted electrical output of at least 10 kilowatts and any prototypes must present a lifetime of 10 years at full full power and must be able to be packed to go in a rocket and weigh between 2,000 and 3,000 kilos. So just say no more than 3,000 kilos. Do what everyone else does when traveling like with Ryanair or with EasyJet. It's like you could pack up to 10 kilograms and by God, you know everyone's going to use every single gram in their bag. And any leftover you put in your coat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're just going to get ast astronauts with uranium in their uh, spacesuits. <laughs> just trying to avoid the excess baggage charge. Just to confirm, when they say nuclear power plant, now most nuclear power plants I know and love are uh, massive. Is this what this is referring to? One of those big nuclear power plants? Because that seems quite ambitious. It won't be a big nuclear power plant. And the, one, the reason why they are big is also for containment purposes and they're usually built commercially. Whereas in the military, you think about a submarine, they've got nuclear generators on them and they are massively enriched. So you get uranium enriched to a couple of percent extra, whereas the fuel used in nuclear uh, submarines, nuclear power submarines, is like 80% enrichment. It's phenomenal. So it'll be like massively enriched uranium what, what does enrichment mean to, uh, is it like the equivalent of better batteries or something? Yeah, basically, better batteries. <laughs> what is enriched uranium? Uranium, you got many isotopes of uranium, 235 and 238, and I think there's a bit of 234 as well. Um, so by adding a neutron to uranium 235, this will cause the isotope to split and release energy via fission, and that's the basis of nuclear energy. However, uranium-235 is not found naturally, or if it is, it's like 0.7%. It's mostly uranium-238, so you need to enrich it by basically purifying it, by getting rid of some of the excess protons and neutrons, so it goes down from 238 to 235. Not really, I forget which one you remove, protons or neutrons. Chemistry was my weakest of the science subjects. Uh, so to enrich uranium, physics be physicists basically separate 235 from the 238. And that's how you enrich uranium. And you said the military get the better version. Well, they've got more money, more time, more resources <laughs> to 
put in to do it. Like, it took five years to get 110 pounds of uranium enriched up to 89%, and that was for the first nuclear bomb. So that was back in the early 1940s. So it's a very expensive process, which the military has unlimited money, basically. So they could do that. So anyway, that's what enrichment is, and you're going to have a very enriched nuclear power source, very small, but it's a case of letting the private sector deal with it. So like, if you could come up with the technology of how to make it nice and compact, and more importantly, safe, then we could put a nuclear power plant on the moon. Yeah, it won't be a massive nuclear power plant the size of Sellafield or Three Mile Island or Chernobyl or other disastrous nuclear power plants that come to mind. It'll actually be the size of a bin, like the small bins you get in the office. So it won't be a massive power plant. You just need a very dense, energy-rich thing that can kick out power for 10 years. And nuclear power is the best way to do that because while you have solar panels, uh, half of the time they're going to be in the shadows unless you're at the very peak of a crater on the South Pole, which I know we've talked about in the past. However, that's not going to generate enough power. And the they predict the technology won't be good enough in the next few years to be able to put out a reliable amount of electricity, whereas nuclear power certainly will. So, yeah, I'm imagining a, waste, a nuclear wastebasket from the office at 2,000 or 3,000 kilos. Is that how dense it is? It won't be that dense. There'll no. be the equipment that goes with it, and there'll also be some... Some cables. Yeah, you'll have the cables. It, it's like you buy, I don't know, a pound of gold, but it'll have packaging you'll have to get it from A to B so you're not just getting a pound of gold you've got to get other things with it that's a bad analogy but you know what I mean there'll be <laughs> other things as well okay yeah that's that's so I was just imagining like that is a very dense bin just <laughs> like if you you're get on... angry on the spaceship and you, you like kick a waste paper basket or something but you kick this thing and to have like two three two three tons like push back on you well, I don't know about you, but I have a waste basket next to me at my computer and it always starts to get about 90% of the way full and then I will compact it down to, so I've got some more space in it and I don't have to take it out just yet. And then I keep doing that <laughs> over the course of months. So maybe if you do that over many years, it'll become dense enough to be two to 3,000 kilos. Um, yeah, that, that does beg a question for this nuclear plant. How are they getting rid of it? once it's done uh or is that not the point we'll think of that later like we do with our current nuclear stock yes what you said right it's on the moon no one cares well if it is fission there will be byproducts and they will have to be contained which is probably what the bulk of this is uh, of what the 3000 kilo payload will be is containment containing it making sure that the waste products are looked after because there will be humans going to the moon and therefore, they'll be coming back. They're not just going to leave them there. So they'll probably take the waste with them. That said, you could probably just leave it on the moon. You're not going to endanger life. It is not great, but you could leave it there. So I know when like Chernobyl went up, the radiation yep. went round on the jet streams around the world and irradiated sheep in Wales or something. Is there an atmosphere on the moon that it'll all sort of go round and pollute the entire moon? Or is it actually it will generally stay where it is and or go off into space? Uh, there is an atmosphere on the moon. It is paper thin, so it's not or it's not thick enough to create the pressure needed for winds. However, there are constantly impacts on the moon, micrometeorites, I believe they're called, and they do kick up dust into space, and they've also kicked up water into space. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has actually measured water that has been kicked up by these tiny little impacts. So chances are if you do bury it and it's not buried deep enough there will be these tiny little impacts I'm not talking like deep impact size meteorites whacking into the moon but just small little things probably about the size of a centimeter maybe even less impacting the surface so if the nuclear waste does bleed out into the uh the ground around it and does infect the area and those little impacts kick up the dust it could do it with enough velocity to escape the gravitational pull of the moon and therefore go into space. So it could actually infect the cloud around it. But at that point, it's probably negligible and it's not going to go anywhere that it would harm a planet. It might 
reach the Earth's atmosphere, but it would be in such tiny amounts that it would barely contribute to the background radiation and would it, it could just be written off as, nah, it, it's not going to affect us. That sounds like the beginning of a film. You're like the scientists that say it can't go wrong. No, I think you'll find that in those kind of films, it's the scientists who are always right, and it's the marketing department or the politicians who are just like, well, we'll do it anyway. Yeah. But you can't do it, sir. It'll cause Armageddon times 2012. <laughs> I'm going gonna, gonna to sound like a massive hypocrite, because I know that I kicked off about that idiot putting tar sneaking tardigrades onto the moon, but he snuck them on without them doing a proper risk assessment and they're just going to live there on the moon. Well, they might, they're still in permafrost. But this way it will be a calculated government-sanctioned operation that will have oversight, that will have peer-reviewed, that will have a proper risk assessment. So I think it's going to be a lot safer than some eccentric billionaire going, ah, I'll do it anyway. How many governments have approved it? Uh, so far, just one, but you do have international treaties. Like, you have um, the IEAE, International Energy of Atomic something. IEAE, they are like the International Committee for Nuclear Energy, so they will have a big oversight in this. You have to meet so many, so many standards when it comes to nuclear power. And there has been talks of, like, uh, just dumping our nuclear waste on the moon in the past, but that would mean getting the nuclear waste from Earth to the moon, which means putting it on a big explosive rocket, which have a tendency to blow up in the atmosphere, so there's absolutely no way anyone would allow that to happen. Whereas a tiny little power source, that's probably, again, what the two to 3,000 kilos will be, protecting that power source. In the case of there is an explosion, could it survive it? Probably, if you make sure it is surrounded with enough lead and safes or whatever, so... Oh, so it's not two to three tonnes of uranium? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> okay, right, sorry. <laughs> so how much uranium are we actually talking about? Uh, in terms of... It's probably easier to talk about it in kilograms. I'd probably say 100. Okay. 13 times heavier than water, so my bin is probably about 10 litres. So I don't know, about 100-odd kilograms. Yeah, I was right with 100-odd kilograms. This is going to sound like really smart when I cut it down, but there was a good two or three minute pause in, while I was all figuring this out. Yeah, he had to take his socks off and everything. So as a layman, and you read the headline of Install Nuclear Power Plant on the Moon, do you get an initial, ooh, not, not a fan of that, or do you think, oh yeah, why not? Initially, it's a no, but I do know that nuclear power plants are like, you can have like nuclear batteries that are in submarines and stuff. And I'm more worried about the ones in, say, submarines, because uh, they'll just sort of sink and leach into the ocean and turn killer whales into actual killer whales with lasers. <laughs> as opposed, <sighs> yes, as opposed, that's how it works. That's 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 how nuclear stuff works. I've seen the movies. Um, <laughs> where, whereas, yeah, on the moon, it, if it goes wrong, it's like, oh, it's gone wrong. I assume it'll be on like the far side of the moon, or are we going to get like a? sort of glowing dot showing up. Well, if you put a little colony on the moon, there will be light coming from it anyway. And they're thinking about doing it on the South Pole to get the water from the craters, that we, that, from the ice, because you need to separate it out into hydrogen and oxygen for rocket fuel. So you need a processing plant, so it'll probably power that, but also just power the base, making sure that the air conditioning works. And when I say air conditioning, I don't mean keeping people cool <laughs> i mean keeping the air flowing making sure there's enough power for the equipment for basic living basic living like showers and eating and cooking and everything like that so a multiple of reasons which is why they say it's got to last 10 years and kick out at least this much energy either way i think it's a good idea and i think it's the l most logical choice given how renewable energies just aren't quite there yet and they probably won't be by the time we actually need a reliable energy source. And there's that much oversight in place. I think it's going to be fine. And when there's an inevitable Chernobyl times 11 on the moon, you can quote me and make me look like an idiot. <laughs> All right, will do. Why can't they just grow trees and burn them on a log fire? Uh, well, do, do you want to have a stab at answering that? They haven't got a saw to cut the trees down with. And also the clangers have unionised. <laughs> <laughs> and we just can't meet their insane pension demands. Yeah. Can you grow anything on the moon? Yeah, you can grow a few little... They're, they've simulated 
the soil conditions that, in theory, you can plant things on the moon. However, the temperature is so volatile that in the course of a 28-day cycle, it goes from, like, minus 117 all the way up to, like, 100 degrees because there's no atmosphere to contain and cause a greenhouse effect. So the ter- temperature's all over the place. So unless you actually build a greenhouse on the moon and just plunk it on the soil and make sure the temperature's all the same, should be fine. Should be able to grow a few things like cress. The cress grows everywhere. Uh, potatoes. No, not potatoes. Uh, sorry. Uh, like tomatoes, I think. You can have a tomato plant. They simulated the soil in an experiment and you could grow one or two things. I've just realised that having a fire would use up a lot of oxygen very quickly. Yes, all that oxygen on the moon. <laughs> so, yeah, if they put a log fire into the moon base, it's just for show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't use it. Like those uh, new builds that don't have a chimney but have a very or- ornamental fireplace. Yeah, it'll be one of them. <laughs> all right, foreign moon news time, and there's a few articles that I'd like to talk about. Now... Cast your mind back to the December or January episode of Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. And if you might remember, is talking about new photos of Ganymede have been taken. And they were like, oh yeah, they took photos of its North Pole. And you're like, okay, that's nice, but what's the big deal? I was like, I don't know, because they're still doing research on them. Check back later and I'll let you know. And it's time to check back later, and I can now let you know. Oh, brilliant. I can let my breath out now. I was holding my breath. (laughs) Is this an example of, like, the olden days when you took the film to Boots the Chemist and they'd kind of get back to you in about two weeks? Yeah, that's when the one-hour photo thing kind of (laughs) sprung up. So they took the uh, photos down to Boots in January. And they were meant to get them back a few weeks later, but they couldn't find them. Yeah. And then, of course, you know you know what it's like. You go out at lunch and it's just like, oh, fine, I'll, I need to buy lunch. I need to go to the bank. I need to go to the post office. And then when you go to the post office and you go to the bank, that's when everybody who is retired and can technically go at any point of the day, they're like, no, I'll go to the post office now and I'll strike up a conversation with the nice clerk who can't say no because they're in a public-facing job and I'll pay for everything in pennies and quibble every single transaction. Despite the fact, like, this happened to me the other day. I went to go post a letter. The person in front of me quibbled absolutely everything. She had a bag of 11 parcels and I'd like to send this to Scotland. Okay, weigh it. First class or second class? Oh, first class. It'll be this much. How much? Uh, Second class. How much? And she did that for every single one of them. (laughs) She didn't get the pattern of... And I timed my interaction. I had my little Casio and I went, boop. Hi, I'd like to post this. First or second? Second class, please. Okay. Way. Them getting out the stamp, them printing it, them putting it on, me paying. Thank you. See you later. Timed it. 59 seconds. Brilliant. And I'd waited in that queue for 17 minutes because, you know, there's two people in front of me and then complainy woman in the left booth and the right booth, the guy turns around, it's like, oh, great, my turn. The sign comes up. I am on lunch. So that probably happened to them and they ran out of time and couldn't go to Boots. Four weeks and then it was March and lockdown happened and then everything went out of... (laughs) <laughs> everything went to pot until now they've got the photos back and but they're not technically like they're, they're not like camera snaps they're infrared images of the north pole of ganymede and by studying it they have learned they knew this already that ganymede has a magnetic field and it's one of the only moons in the solar system to actually have its own magnetic field others are trapped in the planet's magnetic field for example i think europa the jovian moon and one of the other galilean moons that has its own magnetic field but that's because it has been induced by jupiter's magnetic field whereas ganymede is actually outside of the massive effects of jupiter's magnetic field so it's actually got its own magnetic field and it has funneled all of the charged particles from the sun so 
all the way from the sun, it's funneling the charged particles towards its north pole due to this magnetic field. And the problem is, while it might have a magnetic field, it doesn't actually have an atmosphere. So it's slamming these charged particles into the ice at the north pole of Ganymede. So you have this influx of charged particles slamming into the surface, slamming into the ice, which is actually going to have an impact on the crystalline structure of the ice. And it makes it more ordered because of chemistry that I don't really understand, but the article says this battered ice has a different infrared signature than the highly ordered crystalline ice at lower latitudes. So messed that bit up, sorry. But it's quite incredible that just by looking at this simple image, they've been able to look at the infrared signature of the North Pole and go, oh yeah, it's like this because of this magnetic field, because of these particles, and just being able to decipher so much from such a simple image. Yeah, that that's amazing. I mean, there's two things on that, that I'd say. One is it's amazing that you can work out that from the image. Uh, it's gone. It, it's using science beyond my comprehension. Yeah. And the other thing is that NASA has a battered ice expert. <laughs> <laughs> how how did you get that job? <laughs> <laughs> And and also, like, how often is it used? Are you, like, at a desk doing nothing until, like, someone has a battered ice problem? Do you know what they need the battered ice expert for? It's when it's winter in Britain and the pavements haven't been gritted properly. So they set up a camera at the bit of slippy ice and then just film people falling over. Not telling the people that there's slippy ice, but putting the camera there so they can then put it on the news. And therefore, the ice gets battered. They need an expert to come in and talk about the battered ice. Yeah, I don't think that's a scientific... That's more you've been framed. <laughs> that's, that's a different concept. But yeah, I mean, well done to whoever is the NASA's battered ice expert. And and possibly two, because you've got to have a peer-reviewed. So uh, yeah, your battered ice skills are brilliant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am imagining, though, if you stand at, what, the North Pole, is it? You can sort of stick your hands in the air and, and sort of draw in all this sunlight and sun rays that's being magnetically sent towards you. Uh, no. <laughs> no. I'm imagining it, though. I didn't say it was true. The sunlight isn't affected by magnets. Oh, whatever it is. What is it? The Charged particles. Charged particles, yeah. So this happens on Earth. That's what the northern lights are, the aurora borealis. That's charged particles from the sun collecting at the poles, the north and south pole of the Earth, because that's where the magnetic fields are directing the, the flow of charge. So they're directing it towards the poles, and that's what's happening here on Ganymede. And because you have this influx of charged particles, it changes the structure at the north pole. They haven't photographed the south pole yet. I don't know if they plan to. It's probably going to be within the Juno mission because it's going to be there for a while. So they might end up doing it on the South Pole. And if they see a difference in the structure of the materials and the ice, I mean, you can visually see it here. I'll put up an image on the YouTube channel. But if you can see that in the South Pole, then this just it confirms your hypothesis. So, yeah, I'm imagining someone, because there's no atmosphere, so the Northern Lights aren't in the air, they can just come out of someone's fingers. That's what I'm imagining. Uh, I think you're thinking of, like, Storm from X-Men. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, so to summarise, I think I'll let Alessandro Mura, a, co a judo co-investigator at the National Institute for Astrophysics in Rome, and as they said, the data shows that the ice at and around Ganymede's North Pole has been modified by the precipitation of plasma, plasma being the charged particles, it's a phenomenon we've been able to learn about for the first time, thanks to Juno, because we were able to see the North Pole in its entirety. When I edit that, it'll sound much slicker. <laughs> okay, I read a paper, a proper scientific paper. I read it yesterday, and then I read it again, and then before this, because the weather is glorious, I went to the pub, had a pint outside, and read it again, and I think I've got some of it because scientific papers are really hard to read. So the official title for the paper is Accretion of Ornamental Equatorial Ridges on Pan, Atlas and Daphnis. So, Rick, the voice of the everyman, what does this mean? I don't know. <laughs> you get drunk and try and read scientific papers but can't because you're drunk. What? 
what does this sentence mean? Accretion of ornamental equatorial ridges on Pan, Atlas and Daphnis. Uh, first off, is Pan, Atlas and Daphnis, are they moons? They are moons. Right. I'm with you so far. Ridges, they're sort of things like they are on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God we only have one type of thing here on Earth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, equatorial ridges are ridges that are near the equator. Okay. Ornament, so accretion of ornamental equatorial ridges. Uh, are these so these are ridges that are near the equator. They're ornamental, so are they put there to impress middle class friends who might come <laughs> over. Uh, yes, if you put a recorder near Saturn and you'd hear Pan coming towards you, going. In fact, what I might do is cut it out and put in the actual theme tune here and just do a bit of post effects on it and then I'll slice in what I actually sound like, which is this. That was a bad uh, imitation of the Antiques Roadshow theme. There we go. I still, like, I know what the paper's trying to tell me, which is... We did some research into how these ridges got the shape that they are. We suspect that they are old and are not changing that much now, hence they are ornamental. And accretion means how they formed through the particular method of accreting, so like a snowball effect, which is uh, the common consensus for how the moons got the shape that they are. So study into how did the moons get the shape. That's all it is. Is that what ornamental means? Sorry. It's old and it's not changing. I think so. I mean, I'll run the thesaurus on it as well. Yeah. Ornamental. Serving or intending as an ornament slash decorative. I'll have to look up ornament then. <laughs> it still can't be decorative. Beautiful rather than useful. So that just sums up the Kardashians in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, ornamental. So... Grown as ornamental, a plant cultivated for its beauty rather than its use. So all of them just imply that it doesn't have a purpose, it's just there. So it's, it's the beautiful ridges. They do look quite interesting though. So I don't know why they're using the word ornamental like that, but either way, the paper is how did the moons get their shape? So the, the way that I see this is it's just people passing the bat on. So Atlas was first discovered, great. Here's one bit of Atlas we know. So then, okay, oh, let's get another photo of it. Oh, it's this weird shape. How did it get the shape? Oh, well, it probably got the shape from picking up dust from the nearby rings. So Atlas has got its UFO weird shape because it can be described as a flying dune. I'll put a link to my video about it right here. And it can be described as a flying dune because it's got a rocky core in the middle. And then as it goes between Saturn's rings, because it orbits just outside the a ring if i am recording that correctly and it sweeps up some of the dust as it passes and it creates this like dust like saucer around it so what this paper is saying is well in theory the shape of atlas should be perfectly symmetrical it should be a perfect circle and the same with pan it should be a perfect circle both of these moons are tidally locked with saturn meaning the same side is always facing the planet very much like earth and its own moon so why does Pan have like five ridges around it so it's like a, a hexagon rather than a loop around it and Atlas has like a couple of ridges as well like it's not a perfect circle it's like a crumpled hula hoop almost so it's got like a bit of a straight bit and then a perfect curve and then another bit of a straight bit why is it not perfectly symmetrical and they've concluded that one of the reasons through modeling this through various uh, mathematical simulations where they have thousands of particles in the same orbit as these moons and seeing what they do and they've concluded that because the orbits of these little moons are not perfectly circular at one point they're going to be slightly further away from the ring the ring that they're getting the dust from and then they're going to be slightly closer to it again and in the case of pan where it orbits in not outside a ring but in what is i believe the nk gap or the keeler gap which is a gap in one of saturn's rings so you've got a ring either side of it so it'll be able to get dust from both 
bits of the ring. So at one point, it's going to get close to one edge, and then it's going to come back and get closer to the inner edge. And as it does that, it's going to pick up more dust at that point, forming like a little cone, like a little ridge or a wedge coming out. And then the gravity of it will kind of pull it back into its normal orbit because it's an, not a perfectly circular orbit. It's an, Its orbit has eccentricity. And the more eccentricity in an orbit, the more oval it is. So these are very slightly not perfectly circular orbits that result in their not perfect shapes. That wasn't so hard to say, was it? But they <laughs> swallowed a f***ing dictionary and coughed up every other word under the sun. I, I read the same sentence four or five times. I was like, I don't get it. It's not going in. But I got there in the end. I'll put a link to the paper in the show notes. And I do urge you to read it if you can get past it. I This is down to me not understanding the scientific method and properly and not understanding how to word a paper and how to read a paper because I'm out of practice and I always struggled with this anyway and I'm sure for academics it is, it is very well written and very concise and exactly what it needs to be but for me it was just just a bit too dense. Yeah, I'm just skimming through it now. I did maths at university and there's like uh, what appears to be three-dimensional vector fields going on. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. I'll trust you've done your work. <laughs> the best thing is that I don't even understand the axes they're using on the graphs. Like, it's X divided by RH. Is that okay? I don't know. RH will yeah. be the hill radius. Right. <laughs> okay, that means nothing. <laughs> well, where are they? Why, why is it on a hill? Who's put the moon on a hill, Andy? Are there hills in space? Hill is the name of the scientist who coins the Hill radius, and it's it's like a stable point in an orbit. So you have like the sun's Hill sphere, and anything outside of that sphere will not get gravitationally sucked into the the sun. Okay, I still don't understand the graph. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you do want to understand the graph, please leave a comment on the SoundCloud or tweeters or a comment in the YouTube video. So, more foreign moon news, but we're going even more foreign than <laughs> our own solar system because six possible exomoons have been discovered. What's an exomoon, Andy? Well, do you know what an exoplanet is? Yes, but for the purposes of not knowing anything, which is my role on the show... No, I don't. What's an exoplanet? An exoplanet is a planet that orbits a star that is not our own, so it's a distant solar system. And they have discovered potential exomoons around these exoplanets. That's cool. Yeah, it is. And the planets that potentially might host these exomoons, they range between 200 light years away and 3,000 light years away. That's quite a way. That is. That's quite far. To the point where the way you would usually discover an exoplanet is you'd focus... <laughs> How I would normally do it. Well, I go to Google... <laughs> And type in exoplanets and hope someone else has worked out where they are. Okay, how scientists usually discover an exoplanet is they look at the distant star and they measure its brightness output. And if an exoplanet transits in front of it, it will dim. And if it's dimming on a regular pattern, that means there is something orbiting it, most likely an exoplanet. So what they've done... And it, you, you could also do this by visually looking at it, but you can also looking at the way the star wobbles as well, because the star will wobble because of the gravitational pull of the planet on the star. The sun in the middle of our solar system is constantly being pulled around by the likes of Jupiter. Even Neptune has a massive pull on it. So all the planets affect the star and it'll start to wobble. So that's how another way that you can discover exoplanets. But the problem is, you can't necessarily use that same method for discovering exomoons. You can't actually visually see the planets. You're just looking at when they block a more powerful light source. So how can you do that for the moons? Well, you look at something called transit timing variations, TTVs. I'll read how the scientist who discovered these moons explains what a TTV is. The transit of a planet occurs precisely at regular timed intervals, the same as how planets orbit our own sun, but sometimes that precise timing is actually variable. 
This means that the gravity of some other body, another planet or a moon, must be affecting it. These variations are called transit timing variations. So they looked at these transit timing variations for many of the exoplanets and they noticed that some of them, like, oh, these variations in the time that it goes around, this could be due to an exomoon. This could be due to the gravitational pull of another planet. And they had many candidates for this and they actually managed to sort them out into not a moon and yes, an exomoon. So because exoplanets are more massive than exomoons, most transit timing variations observed to date have been linked to the influence of other exoplanets. But now we've uncovered six Kepler exoplanet systems whose TTVs are equally well explained by exomoons as they are by exoplanets. So it could be an exoplanet, but it could also be an exomoon. And this is why all of these moons are called candidates and why the headlines are read potential exomoons because you need more follow-up confirmation and unfortunately the technology just isn't there yet to like get a visual lock on them to get better more higher resolution more precise readings because like it was discovered by the Kepler telescope I believe the J or maybe the James Webb I forget which one discovered it but either way the technology just isn't there yet and it won't be for a while how long will it take? Oh, I don't know. Ten years. They've already put up a massive new telescope. Yeah. This was taken by the Kepler space mission, and that ended in 2018. The next telescope that's going up is the James Webb telescope, and that currently doesn't have the technology to be able to resolve the exomoons. So it's the next one after that that probably will. So we're looking at 2030. But there might also be some better data processing techniques discovered in that time, uh, more mathematical modeling that based on this data, they could infer, oh yes, this is definitely definitely an exomoon because of these gravitational mega formulas that we've managed to compute through these many, many supercomputers. So it's not just the telescope, it's also the data sifting techniques as well. Yeah, I'm just, you know, when you go to like spec savers or the opticians and they put like a little lens in front and it just makes things a little bit more clearer. Can they not put one of them in front of the telescope just so they can see it a bit better? So you you joke, but they had to do that for the Hubble telescope. What, go to spec savers? No, they had to put a lens on it. They had they, they sent it up and it was slightly warped. Yeah, and everything came out blurry. They're like, oh God, we need to put glasses on it. <laughs> did, it did they put two lens and go better or worse? <laughs> flip it round, better or worse? Have you seen the Big Bang Theory? Yes. Okay, did you get up to the point, because I know a lot of people gave up on it, I sure as hell did, but did you get up to the point where Howard went into space? Uh, yes. Okay, he was talking to Mike Massimino. That's a natural astronaut, and that was the astronaut that put the lens on the Hubble telescope. Oh, cool. Did he say, better or worse? Can you see? <laughs> <laughs> Can you read from the top, please? Ground, ground control. Uh Built a giant <laughs> board of letters out in space. Uh, not quite, but <laughs> they probably did make those jokes. In a similar vein, a beer that I'll be uh, drinking later on tonight, it's brewed by Brewdog, and it was a small batch brew that they did where all the profits go to the NHS, and the public could name the beer, and they put out a few candidates... The public could submit their own, but the ones that they put out were the most favourites. So the beer is called Barnard Castle Eye Test. <laughs> and the words get gradually smaller on the can. And it's the Hazy Durham IPA. Right. I want to know how it tastes, yeah. Oh, it's quite nice, actually. It's 6% Hazy IPA, so it's sweeter than a normal IPA. And it's got the texture of, like, a thick orange juice. Not a pulpy one. But uh, it doesn't taste of treachery and incompetence, then. <laughs> no, 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 it doesn't. Oh, it's actually quite nice. <laughs> All right. In summary, by sifting through data collected by the Kepler Space Telescope, astronauts have managed to potentially find six exomoons that could be between 200 and 3,000 light years away. Now, the, these results do require more confirmation and probably will need to be additional observations made through the James Webb telescope and probably the next iteration of them if we actually want to see them. But if they're confirmed, it's a huge step forward in our understanding of space, gravity, and distant solar systems. 
So now it's time for very local moon news. And as usual, we go to Moon Township in Pennsylvania. Uh, I did look, and I have been looking for, uh, for other towns named Moon, such as the small one in Mississippi and the other one in Kentucky. But all I've been getting are obituaries, and I thought, oh, I don't want to report on that. That's a bit sad. Yeah. Although they were very touching, it's, it's just a, a bit... It's sad in comparison to the good news that I have from Moon Township. Uh, I mentioned last time about entering the virtual 5K. Yes. Did you do it? I did. And I won. Oh, well done. I got I got the fastest time. Oh, fantastic. Uh, did you cheat? No, no. I genuinely... I went out and I bought new running shoes. I was due to buy them anyway. So I thought, this is a good excuse to do it. And then I looked at the time that was in number one place at the time and it was 21.29 and I know that I can run 5k faster I have done that in the past but I haven't done it recently just because lockdown I'd have put on a bit of weight and blah 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 so went out and I was timing it on my watch being like okay it needs to be at least four minutes 15 per k and then first one smashed it second one was massively over so it was like panicking desperately trying to run and the last k i practically sprinted it and i was in tatters when i got to the 5k mark i i did it in 21:25, but it probably wasn't worth it because i couldn't walk properly the next day and, and i was almost sick <laughs> oh right <laughs> but you beat all the others of this town you've never been to but they did acknowledge me and they did, like, they gave everyone in the top 10, like, a little highlight post. They were like, oh, it's virtual and we reached all the way to the UK and they even mentioned the podcast. And if you're listening to this, thank you very much for letting me be a part of the race. Uh, unfortunately, the glow jumpers, the special 5k jumpers haven't arrived yet, but I think it'll be a while for them to get shipped over and we'll keep asking to see if they <laughs> if they can ship them over. Yeah, I looked at the um, Moon Glow Run Spirit winners. You are third on the list with the Feet on Fire award, but I like the way that the, the first two awards are not for actual running, just, just best dressed. One is best dressed and one next is best dressed pet. I want to get a photo of Helena Rice's pet chickens. They're on the page. Are they? Right. Oh, I found them. Yeah. Oh, that's epic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I've got to do that with my chickens. What, put little tutus on them? Yeah. But yes, that warrants it with the best dressed chicken. So I'm not sure if this actually counts as news because I directly influenced the news happening. I think this still counts. I'm, I'm sure you'll get away with it. I don't think Ofcom will uh, come down on you hard for, <laughs> <laughs> for doing some charity fun run type uh, thing. Yeah. Okay, that's good. But we'll get back to scheduled programming next week and talk about other moon-related stuff and hopefully some other towns will step up. Well, I want to report more on Doyle's Moon Saloon and eventually have that little pilgrimage there. Here in the UK, the next full moon is going to be on the 3rd of August, so hopefully I'll have the podcast out by then, but no promises. I know that you like to look ahead at the show notes, Rick. Have you spotted the name of this moon? Uh, Yes. Okay, so you know it's the Sturgeon Moon. Uh, yes. Oh, according to that one, yeah, sorry. There's multiple different naming systems, as usual. Yes. yes. Sturgeon Moon, named after a feisty Scottish politician. Speaking of which, I might actually be in Scotland for the Sturgeon Moon. Oh, I thought you meant... Speaking of which, I might actually be Nicola Sturgeon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do vehemently hate the English government at the moment, <laughs> yeah. so... Go on, Scotland. Make a break for it. Take us with you. Just take off the north, anywhere north of uh, yeah, Watford Gap. So where is the line for the north for you? Manchester. Okay, so everyone around here says I'm from the north, where I grew up in North Wales, and a lot of people from Manchester be like, that's not north. Uh, and a friend of mine uh, who comments mean things on all my videos, and if you're listening to this, you know who you are, Adam. <laughs> Uh, it's entertaining, uh, but, you know, just say hello next time. He's from Cumbria, and he was saying the north starts at Keswick. Right. That's where the north starts, which I think might be a bit too north. I think you're right with Manchester. That's, like, what could be described as, like, confirmed north. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, the reason I say it, because as a kid, we always had um, our relatives who were 
in Manchester. So that was the the northest we would ever go. So that that was the north. Even though it's probably halfway. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not. Halfway up the British yeah, Isles. It's, it's really not north, but it is. So some of the other names for the full moon, we've actually covered some of these with the likes of Green Corn Moon. I think Dog Day's moon has appeared previously. Dispute Moon. I remember talking about yeah. this last time. So guessing this is where we perhaps joined it. Oh, started. I th- well, the first episode did come out in August, so I think we have come full circle. So, does the moon do that like every every year? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like it's every month. That's it. What's going on? So, I'm going to keep doing this until we run out of names that we haven't talked about before. So, some of these names, such as Dispute Moon, Green Corn Moon we've talked about before whereas lightning moon lynx moon and dog day moon i don't think we've talked about are that dog days i don't know why it's oh, called right. that because i was gonna say lynx anything animal moon is usually because the animal does something it doesn't normally do at any other time of the year yeah, yeah like book moon is when the antlers yeah. shed swan flight moon i assume is when the swans fly uh yes you are correct <laughs> but dog days generally dogs live in days so I don't know why it's... Um... Oh, that's why. That makes more sense. So dog days, it's when it's like a hot, humid summer day. Like today was really warm. I just like, I just can't be bothered. And like dogs are laying out and that's like a dog day. Oh, okay. Oh, right. So hence the dog day moon. That makes more sense. But it's quite an American phrase, and this is like a net, like a colonial American name for it, apparently. So it's it's not the dog is doing a day. It should be called the dog lying down moon. Or something. <laughs> I approve of dog lying down moon. Uh, so carrying on with our Suan tribe names, we had hard time, long day, sore eye, frog, idle, full leaf, red berry, and now we're on to black cherries. So we've gone on the walk. They've seen some nice full leaves and now they're picking berries from black red berries to black cherries so it's like the hangover is lifting off phase of the afternoon like it's finally ceasing like all you need is a pack of mccoy's salt and vinegar crisps to finally see it it's off quite a decadent hangover if you're having black cherries why are those the really sweet ones they're nice you know i like them they're not the always the cheapest and yes usually you buy them as a treat Sort of a Black Forest Gatto or something. Oh, okay. I, I, I don't know I think what's... they're meant to be picked. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with, um, like, a kebab, which is... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's usually at, like, 3am. This is in the afternoon. Right. <laughs> when was the last time you had a kebab in daylight? <laughs> Probably after a hangover. <laughs> as in, you've got a half-eaten kebab left over and thought, yeah, you know what, I may as well. So, which is your favourite out of the list of moons so far? I quite like Lynx Moon. I would call it the... Uh, kebab moon. Uh, yeah, kebab. <laughs> I do like the black cherries moon. I do like black cherries. Okay, black cherry moon it is for Rick this time. I quite like lynx moon. So, lynx Africa moon, or... <laughs> I can't name any other type of lynx body spray other than lynx Africa, just because of all the stick it got. And now it's time for... And the next moon is... And it's a biggie. It's Europa. Hey! So, Europa, not only is it in hydrostatic equilibrium, which means that it's formed a sphere under its own gravity. It's the smallest of the Galilean moons and smaller than Earth's moon, but it's bigger than Pluto. And it's still 3,100 kilometers across. Its surface is just completely covered with these huge cracks of ice. Like you could see a massive crater on it and all these like shards that have gone out for it. So it's like um, a bullet hole in a car window. From all those movies, you see it like, crack across the screen um that's what it's like on the surface of europa and this icy surface is probably on top of a subsurface ocean because they've discovered volcanic plumes coming out of europa not volcanoes as in magma but volcanoes as in ice and water and saline material so they're cryovolcanoes and the saline material has been discovered which indicates there is probably life in europa i've mentioned this before on the podcast i say probably life on europa the chances of life on europa are significantly higher than they are on other moons in the solar system the exception being enceladus that is equally as high because you have volcanic activity you have a saline ocean you have organic compounds in there the conditions for life are all there. It's just a case of, is life there or not? 
and by life it's like microbes and probably little tapeworm kind of fish. Nothing spectacular, not Daleks or anything like that. <laughs> they, they would rust, wouldn't they, in an ocean moon? Do Daleks rust? Hmm. But then again, it's metal and you've got salty water, so they probably would rust. It'd increase their maintenance budget. Uh, yes, yes it would. Europa, so it's the first moon discovered. And I say first moon, it's one of the first moons discovered because Galileo discovered the four Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto, all at the same time because he got his telescope on Jupiter and noticed his stars around it. And then when he came back the next day, he noticed, oh, those stars have moved. And then he inferred that, oh, wait, these are moons. And so he discovered those four moons and they were all discovered at the same time. So one wasn't discovered over the, over another. Therefore, Europa is one of the first moons ever discovered. And this was in 1610. Sure. That's... Yes. <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry, the reason I'm slightly distracted is I typed in, do Daleks rust? <laughs> oh, for God's sake. <laughs> you, wanted to, you wanted to do this feature to learn more about <laughs> moons of the solar system. And I do the research and I put together these nice little vignettes rather than a deep dive into the topic. And you don't listen to me because you want to know if Daleks rust. And the answer is possibly there was actually an episode where there was a Dalek called Rusty. <laughs> <laughs> no, there wasn't. There was. And, uh, Which Doctor? Because this feels very Sylvester McCoy era Doctor Who, when they went a bit silly. Um, second episode of the eighth series. Rusty the Dalek. Uh, Peter Capaldi. Oh, that explains it then. Okay, yeah, that's it's New Who, which started off great and then went a bit... Oh, this is a slog when Stephen Moffat took over. Uh, yeah, Rusty the Dalek. Okay. Clearly they're just stealing names from Tom's the Tank Engine. Yeah. I think there were differences between the trains on Sodor Island and Daleks. Well, Daleks need a metallic floor to get around. They did in the early episodes. They did on Scaro. Otherwise they couldn't actually... That's how they defeated them in the first few episodes of Doctor Who. They realised, oh, these plates, uh, like the floor's all metallic and there's like this metal taste in the air. And they realised, oh... The Daleks, it's a conductor for the Daleks, so they got them on like a cape and the Daleks ceased. They stopped moving. <laughs> Which I thought was, was like, oh, that's a nice little sci-fi thing. Yeah. Very War of the Worlds. Uh, sorry. Yeah, so that's why I was slightly distracted. Uh, so Daleks do indeed rust under the right conditions. Okay. Goody. What else do you want to know about Europa? Uh, I want to know. So what actually causes the cracks? As in, is it the underlying, not volcanic activity, but oceans moving yes it's a combination of oceans moving uh, and the fact when ice freezes it expands and also there's a cryovolcano and it goes out onto the surface as it hardens because uh, you have the cold of space that will, will cause the surface to instantly freeze but then you have already icy surface so it kind of like it's liquid in the middle and then it's ice on the surface so then it will kind of freeze outwards and then crack you've also got the same issue like you did with io because it's in an orbital resonance with io and ganymede so it's going to be pulled uh, in, and you can have tidal forces from jupiter from ganymede and from io not as strong as they are on io but they're still pretty strong and they're going to cause that to heat up and cause the ice to crack because it is quite a brittle structure so if it turns into a little bit of a bulge then the ice will crack again so these massive faults will be caused by impacts and through huge shifts, not potentially tectonic shifts, because I don't think there's like tectonic plates. But when, for example, Jupiter's magnetic field, because it's variable, that will induce heat in the center of the planet because you've got salty water, which is a conductor. So that will generate more heat. So this surface of Europa is very young, meaning if you look at it, there's not a lot of craters. And that's because the craters have been washed out they've been overwritten through this icy cryo lava that's poured out over it so is the core of the planet is that pure liquid or is it actually solid because of freezing it'll be a rocky core so it'll be geologically active so you'll have like a lava core like here on earth then a rocky mantle around it and then you're going to have a subsurface ocean that they don't know how big it's going to be it might not even be there at all it might just be like not permafrost but frozen ice that's gliding over each other uh, in like a tectonic formation so it could be a couple of hundred kilometers 
thick, deep, this subsurface ocean, or could be non-existent, but there is uh, a rocky core and a rocky mantle after it, or it could be slightly metallic, forget which. But either way, you've got a molten core, so it won't be, or pure liquid even. And, and the molten sort of liquid lava is different to the liquid ocean. Well, it's the same material, but it's just been, like, forced out onto the surface. So it's the same compound, but it's just exposed the, the vacuum of space as opposed to being kept under the ice in a nice warm ocean. Warmish ocean. Uh, so one of the questions that I had while researching this, and I wanted to answer it myself, was why is there a subsurface ocean on Europa, but all rocky liquid... Uh, rocky lava and volcanoes on Io. So why is one all rock and volcanoes and the other ice and cryovolcanoes? And this this is down to the di distance from Jupiter. So the distance from Jupiter determines how much tidal heating is going on in the Galilean satellites. So Io being the closest to Jupiter is heated so much that it's the most volcanic thing in the solar system. It's the most volcanically active moon and probably planetary body out there. So any water that was on Io has been boiled off way long ago. It didn't have a chance to even form an ocean, let alone there be ice. Whereas Europa, much further out from Jupiter, it's further away from its magnetic field. It's not going to be as gravitationally affected as Io is because that's right up against the surface, but it's still going to be gravitationally affected nonetheless. So it had a chance for water to form as ice and it had a chance to retain it even though it is being bombarded by the magnetic field, by the gravitational forces squeezing it. So it had a chance to have water rather than it being boiled off by many, many volcanoes. So I managed to answer my own question, which I'm quite, quite pleased with. <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah, that, that question is a bit advanced for me to pick up. Yeah, I was more worried about do Daleks rust? Um... <laughs> Not only do they rust, they rust to the point where they should name a Dalek Rusty. Yes. Um. <laughs> so Europa is named after the daughter of King Tyre, a noble woman in Greek mythology. And like the other Galilean satellites and like the other moons of Jupiter, they have to be named after a lover or descendant, or in some cases, both of Zeus and or Jupiter. And in this case, Europa is named after the daughter of King Tyre, who Zeus took a liking to, and she then became the queen of Crete. Marvellous. Which is far more straightforward than some of the other things he's done. Like, in the past, he's disguised himself as a cow, disguised himself as a swan, in order to try and seduce the ladies of ancient Greece. Yeah, you'd have thought being a god, if you're attracted to powerful men, it's like, well... God is probably more powerful than a swan. Yeah, but I think at this point, his reputation precedes him, considering if you're a woman... No, not even that. He, he goes after boys as well. Uh, if you are in ancient Greece and have a pulse, you're a threat. Yeah, the mythology is interesting, if not quirky at times. But that's how Europa got its name, named after Queen of Crete, uh, who was a lover of Zeus quite typical of the names of Jupiter. What are you going to call this moon? Sorry, one second. I'm just... It was Europe named after Europa. When I was researching Europa, I kept getting the Football League, which really frustrated <laughs> me. Yeah, Europa.eu is the official website of the European Union. Has Europa the moon complained and said, I'm bigger than you? Oh, that is a point. Is it bigger? Area of Europe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, surface area of Europa is... Yeah, 30 million kilometres squared, whereas Europe is 10.2 million kilometres squared. So three times. Okay. So three times the surface area. It's not too much. Yeah, it's, uh, that's not too bad. Yeah, it's within the same order of magnitude. Yeah, I thought it would be massive. Um, what, what's their um, trade arrangements like? Because uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're looking for a trade deal. <laughs> <laughs> would you like some ice? Yeah. <laughs> We've got plenty of ice. Uh, yeah, that just sounds like Europe. Maybe some life, we don't know. We've got plenty, yeah. plenty of rusty Daleks as well. Um, so many tangents. Okay, what what nickname are you going to give to this moon, Rick? Uh, so I'll, I'll go for the icy uh, moon. There's going to be a lot of other icy moons out there, I should warn you. Dynamic icy moon. Why dynamic? Because it's uh, refreshing itself with cracks and 
cryovolcanoes. Okay, I like that. Or do they all do that? Uh, in Celadus, there, there's other features on Celadus that are actually more pronounced that you'll want to give it a nickname for, which I won't spoil yet, because it's pretty interesting. It's, oh, it's such an interesting moon. But Europa, the dynamic icy moon. I'm fine with that. That's a good one. What would you call it? Uh, I would probably call it something after The Thing, as in the John Carpenter movie from the 1970s, because that's set in the Arctic and there's like an alien life force there. So I think having an icy moon that might have life on it, named after something from The Thing, would be quite cool. Oh, sorry, 1982 film. Hmm, I would probably call Europa McCready after Kurt Russell's character in The Thing, because I really like that movie. So yeah, pro pro probably McCready. Yes, Europa is the dynamic icy moon, and who knows, there might be some dynamic icy exomoons discovered or confirmed in the next few months, and we will definitely report on those. Thank you very much for listening, and catch you next month, where hopefully I will have my moon township glow shirt to show off. All right, catch you later. Cheers, see ya. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Exciting news about... Oh, hang on, let me start that again because I'm about to burp. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're getting a lot for the after the credits. Oh, I'm a mess. Just call me Crabby Burpy Andy. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.